Welcome back to Bulls with the Bard. My name is Cakes. I am your host. Today, we continue our conversation about problem plays with a discussion about Troilus and Cressida. I'm going to be real transparent with you, y'all. I have read this play twice. I have seen a third of it, <laughs> not seen it all the way through. So this is one of those rare Shakespeare plays that I don't feel super comfortable talking about. But thankfully, we have rounded up some awesome guests for today whose knowledge, opinions, and expertise about Shakespeare I trust wholeheartedly. So they're going to lead us through this. I'm going to learn along with you. And uh, let's meet our guests. First, we have a returning guest to the podcast. We have Steph Craniola. Steph, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hey, I am Stephanie. I love a problem play Craniola. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm I'm super excited to be here. I host a Shakespeare podcast called Protest Too Much, where we do fun little best ofs and matchups and yell a bunch. It's it's super fun. I also run Walking Shadow Shakespeare Project, which is a Shakespeare company that focuses on educational interactive programs and one rehearsal pop up productions. So, hello. So cool. I love all of the Shakespeare work that you do, stuff. Our second guest today is a new friend to the podcast, though not a new friend in my life. Someone I am so happy to finally have on. We have B. B, would you like to introduce yourself? Yep, I am B. Um, which, if that uh, pun works for you, um, we're going to get along well. Um, but uh, <gasps> oh! uh, I am a. <laughs> I guess director. Um, I am a sometime professor. I have a new podcast coming out, hopefully before this drops, um, which is called the Shakespeare Canon. Canon spelled like the artillery, not like the book. And I run a little theater, Susquehanna Shakespeare Ensemble, uh, that does you know eight to ten rehearsals. So uh, Steph's got us beat by by seven or so. Um, and we, we've had a, an extended COVID hiatus that we're finally comfortable coming out of and we'll be doing Winter's Tale this, this uh, summer. Um, and I don't believe in problem plays, so we'll have a good time. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, I'm so excited to hear you're back to doing work. I love the work that you put up. So congratulations on that. Before we dive into talking about Troilus and Cressida, I'm going to get a little high. I think Steph is drinking. And uh, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> and uh, B brought a little special uh, bowl of cereal. y'all we are nice and lit and ready to talk about Troilus and Cressida as I said at the top I don't know a whole lot about this play but I do know that like the main definition of problem plays is like it's hard to tell is this comedy is this tragedy like what is it and I feel like with this play when I read it at least I didn't have a very like visceral or obvious reaction that was like 
whoa, it's hard for me to tell what this is. Like, I don't know what's going on. Like something like measure for measure constantly has you like whiplash and Winter's Tale is like a tale of two halves, essentially. But this doesn't, it doesn't quite feel like that. So I guess I, I'm curious why you both think this play is officially categorized as a problem play, because it is. Steph, do you want to start us off? The ending! <laughs> I think the ending of this play is its biggest problem. And I will, I'll talk about that later. Uh, I think it is a little bit of whiplash of genre sometimes because it does feel like, it feels like a history in some pieces. Like if you're looking at the Trojan War as, as a historical event, I think that it is a romance and it is a tragedy and it is a comedy. And so I think it's like, it's trying to do so much, but I think in, it, the ending is really the, the issue. Okay. Okay. B, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah. I'm going to put on my smarty pants for a second because <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think this is a problem play because the people printing it in Shakespeare's time also didn't know where to put it. So, you know, it, it's got two printings and the quarto is called the history of Troilus and Cressida and the folio is called the tragedy of Troilus and Cressida, but it's not even in the table of contents and it's sorted with the comedies. And so I think they were also kind of in a place of, I don't know where this goes, but huh. I mean, yeah, ending problematic uh, <laughs> to be, to be sure, but I and and Steph like fight me on this but like I don't think it's any more problematic than the end of Two Gentlemen of Verona which we very comfortably put in the comedy category for some reason I won't um, fight well you <laughs> I won't fight you on that <laughs> um, you know like there's a certain point that like that I don't know that the endings of these plays are problems but pretty much all of them and so that's why i said at the top i don't really believe in problem plays but it's because i kind of think all of them are are problems mm -hmm. be it content or just like hey this is really hard huh yeah 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 i vibe with that stuff picking up off of something you said you said like this can feel kind of like a history i agree with that wholeheartedly because i feel like there are lots of scenes in this play where we're talking about war. And I feel like that's the place where like we lose people on the histories a lot. Like that that's the place where if it's not done artfully, it can get really snoozy. So like my next question about the play is like, how do you handle scenes like that and make sure like the audience has information they need to get out of these scenes? They're important. But like, you don't put them to sleep. Is that like, is this a matter of just cutting the text the right way? Is it a staging thing? So I love the Greek scenes. And I think this is like really where you, you talk about the uh, snooze fest. And I think these are some of the best scenes in the play if you cut them right. And mm. what I think you need to do is I think you need to chop everyone except Odysseus because Odysseus actually gives the the meat of the information, the meat of the plans. He is the, you know, the brains behind all of it. And so any exposition that you need really comes from Odysseus to set you up for the rest of the play. So chop, 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 chop everyone else. And if everyone else on stage is sick and tired of Odysseus's 
long-winded rants, then it becomes comedy scenes. Mm -hmm. And so you are acknowledging, your actors are acknowledging on stage. We also don't want to be listening to all of this. We have to, but we don't want to be. And it gives permission for the audience to laugh at Odysseus in a way that they can like bond with the rest of the Greeks and be part of that. Like not again. And every, like it has to be everyone on the same page and like, using that dynamic um you can still get all of your long-winded exposition out there and you can make them fun and engaging and get the audience like involved in that uh that dynamic Bob, yeah makes sense so, to me oh go for it B. okay i i i'm excited by what steph is saying so like <laughs> yes and or but so like totally agree about Odysseus needing to be the one thing that you retain because he has the exposition and giving the audience permission to not feel like there's about to be a quiz on it. Mm. Um, but um, I also think that kind of needs to be paired with some level, especially in that opening scene, which, um, you know, I can never get through the first Greek scene. Like I, I sit down to reread it and I get like 200 lines in. I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. But like along with that the fights have to be great in that way that the fights in the henry six plays have to be great and maybe they don't have to be in the henry four henry five plays right because i hate one henry six i know that's not what we're talking about but like i hate one henry <laughs> six but one of the best performances of any shakespeare show i've ever seen is one henry six and it was because the huh. fights were just fucking great and so to have that counterpoint because if we're allowing the audience to be bored by Odysseus then we all or Ulysses I guess um we also like we have to have the most badass Hector and and Achilles to get the audience it emotionally invested in that piece of the story in a way that like the early history plays make you mm hmm Huh. I think casting is another element of that too. So I directed Toilets and Cressida kind of a couple of years ago, spring 2020. So we never actually did it. We did it online. But I think casting is part of the the problem of this play is that on paper, you have a play of 30 middle-aged men and that's really it. And like maybe a couple younger. And I think like with these war scenes, like if you have a range of experience in them and you can play those dynamics and also cast actors of all genders in these roles, like I think you automatically solve some of the problems, especially in these Greek scenes. And like you're saying in those, in those action scenes and those fight scenes, if we're seeing not just men, in these battles, it just automatically solves a few of the problems that I think it inherently has as a play. Yeah, I I vibe with both of those things. I think when I read the play a couple months ago for like the second time, I was like, uh, I, I felt this way about all of the histories, actually. Just like, uh, I don't want to read another like strategy war scene. I don't want to. And I was like disappointed because I was I didn't feel like I related to the histories that way before. And I think I came out of reading all of them going, ah, the action wasn't there. Like the action was one stage direction or mm -hmm. something along the lines of that. And so, yeah, I think there is something to like being able to sink your teeth into a juicy battle rocks. And then I think there's an added layer to like, we're used to seeing 
amazing cisgendered men fight on stage. And so there's an added layer of excitement if you throw in people of other genders to mm-hmm. play those roles. I think like the production that I watched a third of, I was excited to see a variety of genders on stage, but disappointed to see that a lot of the people who provided that variety were cast in roles that just spoke. So yeah, I I think like there's something to everything that both of you just said. Um, so I've I've seen this one time in person, but I saw it in person live at American Shakespeare Center in mm. 2013 or something like that. And so their their aesthetic there is the like bare bones, twelve actors, you know, doubling through the whole thing, minimal design. Um, and they they were even doing a concept that time where they were doing a nod back to their earlier years because it was some sort of anniversary production, and so they wanted to do like we're just sitting on, you know, rehearsal cubes and we're wearing chucks and things like that. And so there was like nothing except actors on stage to tell the story. And and so in that way, because they, I think at that point, they had a pretty rigid eight male uh, and four female actors in, in their company at any given time. They did have a good mix. Renee Thornton Jr., who um, was one of their you know main actors and is stellar if you've never seen him, I think he's frequently in Utah now, was playing Ulysses and was tremendous. And, you know, Black 37, 38 compared to a mostly white and younger cast. And, and then there were some like dynamics within there where the person playing Achilles had just played Iago opposite him a couple years before. So like there was that like, there was that innate chemistry already. Um, and so like there was a level to which I appreciated that, you know, I wasn't watching a bunch of middle-aged guys arguing with each puppy. Sorry, puppy. Um, <laughs> um, at the same time, one, they made what I think was an unforgivable mistake, and they had a male actor playing Achilles and a female actor playing Patroclus. Nope. And yeah, exactly. I was like, hard, nope. like, hard out, hard out. I'm done. Um, yep. They they almost made up for it by making uh, Diomedes a, a female actor, but not enough. And so I was mad about that walking in. <laughs> um, but um, the other thing that I I started to feel about it and i'm all about that like really small tight cast but there's something to the the difference between what troy is and what greece is and if you have enough people if there is some homogeneousness homogeneity of the greeks and some diversity of the trojans in a way that you can really see conquest and that idea of like here is a monolith coming in to destroy something beautiful and and expressive and queer and you know all these sorts of things like i i haven't directed the show yet but god i'm so itchy for it and you know like i want that whole whole like parade of trojans at the beginning to be a drag show and you know things- <laughs> well we'll get to i think we'll get to that scene for okay. sure in okay. a minute Pause. i think yeah <laughs> Yeah, I actually think I'll uh, I'll shuffle up our questions a little bit because I think this is a good place to ask the question. Like, I I struggle with getting into this play, and I think it's probably one that a lot of people feel that way about. So I I'm curious, like, what 
characters, scenes, monologues, whatever you think can be used to, I don't know, like as a good entryway to this play to get people excited about it. Um, Steph, do you want to go? You see, You're like, <laughs> yeah, no. out of your chair. I mean, like, but literally that scene at the beginning where Pandarus is like, mm, isn't he hot? Oh, look at him. Ooh, what about that one? And Cressida is just like, eh, eh. And like, oh, ooh, what about, what about Troilus? You like Troilus? And she's like, yeah, but what about that guy? What about him though? Mm. Like, it's so funny. And it's such a good character introduction. And a lot of these, I think one one of my problems with Shakespeare sometimes is that we get these really like one dimensional characters who just like appear to move the plot along in whatever, you know, whatever way that they can, but they don't actually get a chance to show any type of personality. And so having this scene where we see all of the the warriors coming back and we get to see there, you know, like, uh, oh my gosh, Cressida and Pandarus uh, and Alexander sitting up high and like all of these, like all of these warriors coming back home doing their runway walks. It is a runway, a hundred percent. And like, they should be empowered to have so much fun and show so much personality. And like, I think the scene is one of the most underrated in like all of Shakespeare. It yeah, it's tremendous. I was mm-hmm. I was reading it recently and having that moment where like you you know your partner is sitting over there and you're just like, I have to read this part to you out loud. No way, I have to read this part to you out loud. And it's the whole <laughs> and so we can talk about the prologue. We should talk about the prologue in a second because I have feelings and thoughts. But for me, where this play wakes up is is you know you have that parade of people. You have if you if you don't have a way to wake up your audience in that parade, like Steph was talking about, you have no business doing this play. I'm sorry, um, yeah. but there's this moment where Pandarus says they're talking about Hector. He says himself. No, he's not himself. Would it were himself? The gods are above. Time must friend or end. Well, Troilus. Well, I would my heart were in her body. No. Hector is not a better man than Troilus. And Cressida says, excuse me? Yes. You know? and yes. So, so much sass in the so modern <laughs> and so good. Yeah. He is elder. Par- pardon me? You know, like, what the fuck did you just say, my dude? Like, I don't know. There, there, there's something to the simplicity of that like utter calling of bullshit in that moment. It's like, I know what you're doing. You mm-hmm. don't have to sell him that hard, I promise. Um, and yeah. yeah, so so for me, like if, if you can't do something really cool and and sexy with the with the parade of people, then you've got to do something to just undercut the seriousness of it when you get to that excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's such a good scene. I am like excited listening to both of you talk about it because like that scene is very fresh in my mind from having just watched the beginning of this play. And the RSC did not do that. They were very like plain and boring about it. And and, like, yeah, when I read that scene, what y'all are talking about is exactly what I want to see. Like, it's a fun scene and a great, it's early in the play. Like, it's a great way to get your audience on board. Yeah. And my, my first time reading this play was in a reading group, like right before I was going to grad school. And I was like, can we all just like read the plays I don't know? 
and we, the way we divided up parts were was like, well, the ones on top are going to be the bigger parts, so we'll start there and we'll go on down. And we had one of our like better, more fun readers assigned Antoner, um, who has no lines, but is like so important. Like the whole play is arguing about this guy up to the level of the changeling boy in Midsummer. Like it, mm-hmm. he is that mm-hmm. important and that irrelevant at the same like he's a total MacGuffin you know but somebody's gonna play him like somebody's gonna be on stage a lot but he never says anything yep I think in this question also the two other characters three other I'll, I'll keep it brief but the three other characters that I want to talk about if I'm getting someone to read this play Cassandra and when I cast this I cast Cassandra as a I don't know how old she was at that time nine maybe nine-year-old child so to see this tiny little girl come out there and do these scenes I think that really a lot of like a lot of that is really what kind of shaped my love of those scenes uh so I don't know if that's a personal thing but I think there's so much power in this tiny voice who is so right and so unlistened to and so cast aside and reading into the power of her scenes I think is really spectacular obviously Achilles and Patroclus that uh, that that funeral speech, that death speech, is one of the most beautiful displays of grief in the entire mm-hmm. canon. And then Thersites as a character all the way through. Like, A-plus use of that jailer, porter, not clown, but like, not, yeah, clown, not fool, role archetype. Thersites is excellent for that. Huh. Yeah, the RSC production that I just watched, uh, they cast Cassandra as a deaf actress. And I had kind of been zoned out. And when she came out, she just like screamed and then started speaking in sign language. And I was like, this is a choice I can get behind. That's that's exciting. That's really cool. And yeah, I think the other three characters that you just named are the other three characters that when I read it, I, I get stoked about. So... B, you mentioned the prologue. Yeah, so the prologue, right? Yes. The <laughs> prologue. I mean, if, if this isn't a Star Wars crawl, like, I don't know what else is, <laughs> right? Um, and, and, like, we are so, at this point, primed for things like that, right? And so, you know, it, it's part and parcel with the with the parade of people coming in, but, like, your production needs to define like what is this chorus, what is this parade, and then like what is Thersites. And if you figure out, I think those three things, and you don't cast a a visibly heterosexual looking couple as Achilles and Patroclus, like I think you're okay with the with the play. And so this speech here, especially when next to like all of the Achilles speeches, like it's it's exposition heavy, but like in a really nice dense way feels very much like the stage manager in our town or the star wars crawls or whatever but it's like look here's what it is you know in troy there lies the scene you know here here all this stuff is happening you know all this stuff great we're not going to talk about that anymore like for me um i i i guess i have an opposite opinion of of your steps as far as like i love the scenes in troy the as much as i'm like a big history play buff 
I don't really like the Greek scenes all that much in this play. I like this city that exists in Troy and that like every time you turn around, there's another weird new person coming in, like in the Forest of Arden, but it's a city and it's a city under siege. And it like my knowledge and my intended knowledge that like all of this will be destroyed so you can reveal something more beautiful with each person, right? Just like, I don't know, the Nine Worthies and Love's Labor where you can make them like better and better and better because you know the audience isn't ever going to get the payoff, right? So you got to make, in my mind, like I want to make every new person in Troy, a, a, you know, a new and beautiful snowflake. Um, it's so funny that you say that because when you, when you said opposite me, I would have, I was about to be like, no, I also love all of the Troy scenes better. But like that, now I realize I, I really only listed Greek characters in you my did. like. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think you really meant that. I, I was like, you know, huh? yeah. <laughs> trying to create conflict. That's all. No, I love it. I love fight, it. Fight, fight me. Fight, fight. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean. You know, if I ever do get the chance to do this play, like I'm probably doing some big concepty sci-fi B movie, you know, drag burlesque thing with it. Um, and like this opening speech has the space to introduce everything. Like you can do a dumb show if you need a dumb show. You can use signifiers for this is what Troy is. This is what what Greece is, etc. I love, I love a good dumb show at the start of a play. Ooh, I do it all the time. All the time. Doing it next Sunday. I think almost every Shakespeare play needs to start with like a little bit of music. And whether like if you don't have a prologue, you use a song, put a put a kid on a guitar, make them sing a <laughs> Marcus Mumford <laughs> song and <laughs> let the audience know what's up. Ted <laughs> <That> Lasso? <laughs> that's that's our curtain call for uh, oh. for symboling because the if you take it from not the chorus it's really good it is a great song yeah i mean i'm never gonna complain about marcus mumford if you want to put no. it in all shakespeare i do i i do uh and i told myself i was only gonna use one uh like mumford and songs cover in this play and then I only have four songs in the play and realize that three out of the four of them are Marcus Mumford, <laughs> but only one is Mumford and Sons. So it's fine. There you go. You met your goal. Yeah. <laughs> Technically correct is the best kind of correct. Amen. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll swing back into Troilus and Cressida land. So when I read this play a couple months ago, I was kind of dreading it left it liking it more than I did when I started but also left it being like damn I wasn't expecting this to remind me so much of Romeo and Juliet and it really does Romeo and Juliet is a play that gets produced all the fucking time all the time like maybe every other season for some companies and Troilus and Cressida does not like Mm -hmm. I, I can't think of a time that I have been in a place where a production has been up. It, it's very rare. So part of my interest for this season in general is like, there are some of these problem plays that don't get done enough, and I'd like to see them on stage more. Yes. If you were talking to someone who was running a theater company who was like, we're doing Romeo and Juliet again, and you were like, wait, 
I've got another idea. Troilus and Cressida. Like what Boy, have I ever? <laughs> what what would you say to get them on board with this play? And what do you think it has to offer that Romeo and Juliet maybe does not? B, do you want to start us off with that one? Yeah, I do. Sweet. <laughs> um, so I actually just did pitch this play very, very recently um, because um, I was interviewing to run a theater. I didn't get it, unfortunately, so this won't happen. But one of the parts of the conversation was, what would your first play be? And I said this. And part of that was it was a it's a professional company, but one that is very invested in its neighborhood, not just its city, but like its neighborhood of the city. Um, and one of our big pieces of conversation was that, like, I'm not from there. Right. And and being somebody brought in to manage a cultural touchstone was like a real conversation that we needed to have. Um, and I was like, well, like this play talks about that, right? This play talks about a place that has been, you know, singing along just fine. And all of a sudden somebody else comes in and and says, this is mine now, right? And and in a really complicated way that, I don't know, like when, when you and I were pre-talking or Facebook messaging, you know, about this, um, I was I was thinking about your framing of it as Romeo and Juliet-esque. And I think this play already is all the things that concepts try to make Romeo and Juliet into. Juliet is, she is commodified, essentially. And Cressida is commodified, actually, multiple times, Mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, there are just, like, these moments where... Like, if you think about Romeo and Juliet being between an 18-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl, there's no consent there. But if you, like, understand what Shakespeare was maybe playing with, and you do the thing that every company does where they make her much older, and, like, there is a consent level, again, like, there's no working around that for this play, right? Again, that remains a problem that you can't avoid and you can't get away from. And then also, like, the fights in this are better. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mercutio. (laughs) These fights are better and there's more at stake. So like, I don't know, that's a big answer, but like trying to wrap it around like my recent pitch plus like the specific Romeo and Juliet of it. That's kind of where I'm coming at it. What do you think, Uh, Steph? Yeah, um, I actually, I pitched this when I was teaching to replace Romeo and Juliet because it didn't end up working because like, I don't know. public education Uh, (laughs) i i think that usually romeo and juliet is taught as the freshman play and also in that year kids get the odyssey and so i think building upon something they have already had experience with they have a concept of the trojan war because we've just taught it to them and now i always forget that it's ulysses in this play and not odysseus but we have this character who it's like a sequel or i guess a prequel to the odyssey but we have someone that they're already familiar with. And I think one of the things that kids struggle with, um, and I will try to keep this brief, but one of the things that they struggle with in Romeo and Juliet is the idea of two house- households, both alike in dignity. If there isn't a visible class race separation between them, students in my experience have a really hard time grasping why they're fighting. Now, of course, that's part of the whole thing. Nobody knows why they're fighting. There's no reason for them to be. But in a lot of modern film or stage adaptations, they've visually given these houses a reason to be fighting. And we that's a whole separate podcast episode to talk about. But 
this, we have a very clear war. And so love in the midst of this war has automatically more resonance with students. And I'm taking this very much from a teaching perspective. There are still things that tear people apart, even if they're not on opposite sides of this feud. And so seeing that, I think validating kids' struggles and their problems being real problems, even though you might look at them and be like, you're a high school kid, you have no problems. Or like your like ninth grade relationship isn't the end of the world. We know that as adults because we've been through it, but they don't. It is the end of the world to them a lot of times. And so to kind of show them that it doesn't have to be two worlds tearing you apart that you're fighting, but it can be your own friends and family. All of that on top of the fact that I think this is an ensemble play and I don't think Romeo and Juliet necessarily is weighted as an ensemble play as much Mm -hmm. as it could be. We really have this idea of family dynamics. Looking at the scene, this is another scene that I I would pitch if you're, you're looking to read it, but looking at the brothers on the Trojan side, like fighting with each other and like who they choose to support or who they choose. Like, like we're not going to talk about that idiot Paris. We're just like, (laughs) what's done is done or what's done can be fixed. And they have these really real familial fights that give depth of, of relatability to someone of a high school age. That's, you know, that's what they're dealing with a lot of the time is relationships with siblings and with their families and parents and no one no one really understands that um but I think this play does show it in a really great way that was a long answer I'm so sorry (laughs) no no that was lovely I I appreciate you bringing it back to the people who would be consuming it uh, and how that relates to them I think that We don't necessarily do that enough, especially with our high schoolers when we're introducing them to Shakespeare. So I I think that's really wonderful. Another thing that you just mentioned was the idea of like kind of finding love amidst this chaos of war. And another, another thing that you brought up at the beginning of this was that you feel that this play is a problem play because of its ending. And... The ending of this play kind of fucks with that love in the middle of the uh, the war and gives you a less like satisfying, less finite feeling ending than something like Romeo and Juliet does. And it, it can be, I think, a frustrating thing for an audience to like experience this whole play and then leave with what they have to leave with. So I suppose we'll leave our audience with the question, like, how how do we handle this ending so it feels compelling instead of frustrating? Steph, do you want to start? I rewrote it. <laughs> Shakespeare's dead. Uh, he doesn't care. The ending of this play is stupid and it is dumb and I hate it. And so I changed it. I vibe with this 100%. (laughs) It was, and like, I will be honest, um, it was like pretty heavy handed because we were all in a place uh, in April of 2020. Mm -hmm. And so basically what I have is to mirror the prologue, I have like, as soon as Troilus and Diomedes start fighting, I have Cressida come out and she stops it. And then it's like an overlapping monologue that the women are basically just like, can we quit fucking around? Like all of our all of our husbands are dead. 
you want to keep this up or do you want to solve your shit? And Cressida is basically like, Troilus, chill the fuck out. Like, you know, I love you. If you can't trust that, you don't <laughs> deserve me. Diomedes, I can respect you, but I'm not going to give you what you need in terms of what you're looking for. So Troilus, if you want to win this war for me, go for it. But like, stop dicking around in this petty bullshit. Kind of how it goes. Hell yeah. Have you <laughs> ever thought about licensing this ending so other people can do it? Uh, nope. I had not ever, actually. That's something you should think about. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it's very, it's very uh, heavy handed, but I couldn't deal with leaving the play as it actually ends because I it was just not for me. Nah, I'm on board with that. I, as I always say on this podcast, <laughs> we're all about fucking with Shakespeare here. So yeah, we are. Yes, <laughs> hell yeah. Uh, B, what are your thoughts on this? I'm not sure. Uh, I will say that I'm not <laughs> sure. Um, I I love Steph your idea, and you know that put in mind also like is there something to pull from Trojan women or something like that uh, to tie it in made me think about kind of my my take on henry six which is telling it through the widows the whole time and so like is there something to do with a chorus there to to balance out there are two plays of which this is one and merchant of venice is the other and i'm this close to putting othello in this bucket as well where i think shakespeare just doesn't let you have a good ending doesn't let you have a happy ending and doesn't let you feel good about yourself having seen the play and mm. um at, you know what measure for measure is totally there too i lied um so maybe maybe this is my definition of a problem play because um <laughs> like merchant of venice there are no good people in that play there are zero mm -hmm. good people in that play there are plenty of people you can sympathize with but zero good persons and this leaves me there a lot i was about to say a little bit but a lot but also like with it starting so epic with you know the parade with the chorus with the battles with the greeks and ending with pandarus right and ending with destruction and ending with diomedes and like I don't know how to pronounce her dad's name. I've always said like Calchas. I don't know. It it makes me think about like there are there are no heroes in reality, right? There is no there's no such thing as a hero. There's no such a thing as a villain. There's just people, and people kind of suck sometimes, and people mm. are good sometimes. But like our good person died. Sorry, right? In this play, and you know, with without. Patroclus I don't much care about anybody else and so there's part of me that just thinks like Shakespeare you know like I think Steph you're right you need to create a satisfying ending if you want a satisfying ending and I don't necessarily think that it is good um, business practice for a theater to intentionally leave its audience deeply disgusted and dissatisfied but I also kind of think Shakespeare wrote a play to leave his audience deeply disgusted and dissatisfied huh I mean, yeah. that that just makes me ask the question like, okay, then what can you get out of it? Like, what do you need to get the audience to think about when they leave the, the theater? 
Because, like, if you are going to leave them feeling disgusted, which, like, I've definitely left the theater feeling that way before, like, then I also want to be thinking about, like, huh, what did, what did that say about society or, or life or myself? And, like, what can I change or do about what that just made me feel? So that's interesting. I, yeah, I don't I, have an answer for that. I think it, <laughs> no, no, it, that's it fine. No, question, but I think right? there's something to be said about that, though, about, like, yeah, like, sometimes people need to sit with their discomfort. And, like, I don't want to. If a show is going to make me feel weird things, I'm just going to turn it off. I'm not going to watch it. Because I'm I'm someone who consumes media that will either make me sob and then get that out of the way or make me feel nice and wholesome. And, like, I just... I spend so much time thinking about all of the like uncomfortable, weird things in my like regular approach to life that in media, but that's not, no, not everybody does that. And sometimes you need to kind of kickstart that. Like, yeah. I wonder if there's a way to cultivate an experience of shows and nestle this within it so that like this play can leave you uncomfortable, but the full experience doesn't. And mm. like builds on that discomfort in some way. I was just on um, teen uh, teens take on Shakespeare that that podcast, and we were talking yeah, yeah. about Love's Labor for a while. And that one like also seems to really, really intentionally leave you in a place of like, no, you don't, you don't get the ending. And you know, I used to think that that there Love's Labor's one was a real play out there. I don't think that anymore because just the way that Love's Labor's Lost ends with the with the nine worthies where you don't get to see the end of that play either. Like it seems to be saying no, like life is too long for a play. And it seems to be something that is sprinkled throughout the Shakespeare career of like, I can't give you a nice neat bow. I can't hmm. give you that. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Huh. <laughs> I almost want to say with that, <laughs> we can leave our audience with a nice not perfectly wrapped up bow and uh wrap up this conversation unless one of you has anything else you want to add no i just i just b has got me like i went on a tangent a long time ago uh, i don't know how familiar you are with great comet but i uh so it's basically a sliver of war and peace but i really want to do a rep of Troilus and Cressida and Great Comet because there's a lot of similar like it's focusing on a, a romance in the middle of a big picture war and it kind of ignores a lot of the war part but like focuses on the the human relationships in it and Great Comet also has kind of an unsatisfying ending but it has a little bit more of like a hopeful upswing at the end so I'm like if you did Troilus and Cressida first and Great Comet like it could be like a, a a rep of what you're talking about that like you you have some sort of resolution but like it's not all happy huh i think if you did it and rep with great comment you'd get people to come and see the show yeah so. people love that show i was gonna say you'd get them to come to the great comment <laughs> at the very least <laughs> you have to see both y'all will make you we hand you your ticket to great comment when you leave Troilus when and you leave <laughs> at the end at don't the get end. it at intermission <laughs> you can't that. you can't walk out <laughs> new business model y'all yep i love that oh no <laughs>
All right. I think that is a good place for us to wrap up our conversation about Troilus and Cressida. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. You're both people who I adore listening to talk about Shakespeare in other mediums. So I'm so glad you joined me on mine to do so. This episode is dropping a week from next Tuesday. I think that's May 30th. Do y'all have projects that you would like to plug that are coming up in the near future? B? Uh, sure. Um, so I've got a couple things coming up. Uh, one out in uh, Maryland, north of Baltimore, if anybody happens to be watching from that area. Susquehanna Shakespeare Ensemble is going to be doing The Winter's Tale, probably in July. We are like the most loosey-goosey theater company in the world. So uh, <laughs> saying probably July actually is a commitment to doing it, It, but just because I didn't say a day, but um, we will be doing that. Best way to get information about that is follow Susquehanna Shakespeare Ensemble on Facebook. That's where information will be. And I am launching a new podcast, which Yay! I'm very excited about. Thanks actually partly to Steph because I went on her show a few months ago and I was like, I just want to do this all the time. And so I am launching the Shakespeare Canon, which I'm going to do my logo up here so that people can see how it's spelled. It's so pretty. Um, and uh, you can, you cannot subscribe as of this recording, though you probably can by the time it drops, but at Shakes Canon with the two ends in the middle. So spelled like the, like the artillery on Twitter, follow us there. And then we'll be on whatever podcatcher you're on. Hell yeah. I am so excited to give y'all a listen and I'm hyped that you're doing the winter's tale because we talked about that last week. Steph, how about you? Yeah. So, um, when this drops, I will have just directed loosely, uh, using that term Cymbeline, uh, in our one rehearsal production. So hopefully it went well. I'm going to say it went great. I'm going to say <laughs> everyone knew their lines. Everyone was so good <laughs> and it was a huge success. So that's a Walking Shadow Shakespeare project. Uh, we have walkingshadowshakespeare.com or WS Shakes on Instagram. So check that out, see how it went. And that for that, we do free park one rehearsal shows. And then also I'm looking to get our education program up running in Austin. But other than that, I do a podcast called Protest Too Much, and that is at P2M Pod on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. And I just yell a lot about Shakespeare. So <laughs> that's, that's really my brand is just chaotic Shakespeare. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, we are stands of the Protest Too Much podcast here at Bulls with the Bard. Definitely one of our favorites. And now looking forward to standing the Shakespeare canon too. So exciting. I think next week we're talking about The Tempest, which will be a very uh, interesting conversation. We've got some some cool guests coming in. We've got Aloha from last season and Rania Brown from last season. So I think it'll awesome. be a good conversation. Until then, we will see y'all next week. Bye. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow Steph, B, and Bowls with the Bard at the handles either on your screen or in the description. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe. And tune in next week as we talk with Aloha Rasmussen and Rania Brown about The Tempest. Until then, bye all. Bye.
A thousand, thousand sighs to save Oh, lay me where sad true lover Never find my grave to weep there